All right, we will go ahead and get started, and uh, I will open us in prayer, and uh, then we will, we will dig back right in. We have a, a little video at the start, and I have a few slides, um, and we want to be thinking today. Uh, Pastor Mark and a few guest teachers are teaching through how has Christianity transformed the world, and I don't know if your friends and or relatives um, have or acquaintances or coworkers have some negativity about Christianity. I know I have several relatives that think our family uh, is terrific, but by and large, Christians are terrible people that are a scourge on the world. And, um, and you might have, I know living in the Bible Belt, that's not as prevalent. Um, but I, I think Pastor Mark and others are teaching well. Here is, by God's grace, what Christians have done and continue to do as imperfect, forgiven people in our world. I think they're really good things to think about. And then on, on top of that, we have just this week um, a legal decision for life that I grew up, you know, my, my dad came to Christ when I was four or five. And I remember immediately, so that like 1980 or 81, hearing life stuff. And we'd be listening to focus on the family in the mornings with my mom after my dad went to work and babies can get killed and it's legal and we're going to pray for this to end and and we would go to protests and marches and things and uh and and God did good work and is doing good work we'll continue to pray and there's obviously much more to be done and um yeah, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Let's pray. Lord, we are broken, sinful people. We fall short of the glory of God every single day. We, we cry out only on the work of your son, Jesus, on the cross. Um, we, we don't deserve any of these good things that you give us. Eternal life, being able to call Jesus our Savior and Lord and brother. We're going to hear at the beginning of the morning service, Lord, of, of a couple who, man, has gone through stuff that I can't even comprehend, getting out of Afghanistan, leading a house church there. They're just going to share a little bit, Lord, but here's a brother and a sister who've been through so, so much. Lord, may we be promoters of life for as long as you give us life here on this earth. And may we praise your name and may we see glory go out to the nations Glory that belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start with a, uh, just a quick video here to get some of our, our thinking in line, and, uh, and then we'll dig into some slides. Oh, shouldn't have done that. have a moral responsibility to protect the unborn. And part two of our interview, the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development opens up to us about how it was his time spent as a pediatric neurosurgeon that helped to shape his pro-life views, especially when he would operate on babies who were still in the womb. Here is part two of our interview with Dr. Ben Carson. I want to turn now to your career as a pediatric neurosurgeon. You truly are an expert on the unborn child. Can you just speak to the reality of the unborn child based on what you saw in the operating room and did that shape your pro-life beliefs? Uh, well, you know, there was a time when I was pro-choice and I said, 
you know, I don't believe in, in killing little babies, but, you know, what right do I have to tell somebody else uh, what they should do? So, you know, I was pro-choice. And then it struck me one day as I was reading about slavery. And I said, what if the abolitionists had said, well, you know, I, I don't believe in slavery, but you guys can do what you want to do. Uh, you know, what would be going on in our country even today? So I, I think there is a responsibility, a moral responsibility that we have when we know things are being done incorrectly, when we know that little tiny innocent babies are being slaughtered. And it, it's not, you don't have to wait very long beyond conception to see that that's a little baby. You know, at, at six or eight weeks, you can see that little nose and those little lips and ears and little fingers and toes and the heart's beating. Uh, you know, uh, I was at a banquet and a, a woman came up to my wife and she said, are you Dr. Parsons' wife? And she said, yes. And she said, your husband operated on me when I was still in my mother's womb. And now today she's a grown woman, uh, fully capable of supporting herself, beautiful young lady. And uh, for that reason, you'll never convince me that what's in a mother's womb is a meaningless bunch of cells. To that point, I think something that is so scandalous, Dr. Carson, is that there are some hospitals that will perform surgery on an unborn child like you used to do, but then in a separate hospital wing, perform abortions on different unborn children. Your thoughts on that, how some unborn babies' lives are truly fought for while others are snuffed out? I think that's a real responsibility that we have to help people to recognize that these are individuals, these are human beings, they need our help. You know, I was at a conference in South Africa and the head of the ACLU was bragging about how they are the ones who speak for the, those who can't speak for themselves. So I said, uh, a woman came to me, she was 33 weeks pregnant and she was on her way to Kansas to get an abortion because that was the only place in the country that would still do it that late. And I talked around of it and she had the baby, had a neurological deficit. I had to operate on the baby, but the baby's fine. She loves the baby. She's so glad she didn't kill that baby. But I asked him, would you speak for that baby? That's a baby that couldn't speak for itself. A baby 33 weeks, viable outside the womb. He hemmed and hawed and skirted the issue. Later on that night at dinner, I said, let me make it easy for you. I said, uh, I operate on little kids that are 25, 26, 27 weeks gestation. They're in an incubator. They're getting maximum support. Will you speak for them? He said, absolutely. I said, but the one that's several weeks further advanced and is in the safest place in the universe it can be, you can't speak for that one. And he says, uh, I realize that doesn't make any sense, but I believe the woman has the right to kill the baby until the second it was born. And I said, will you say that out loud? He said, no. But now they will say it out loud. Now they even talk about killing babies that have been born. Uh, you know, we're going to look back on this time sometime in the future and say those people were barbarians. Dr. Carson, earlier this year, Planned Parenthood renounced their founder, Margaret Sanger, Um, heard from Dr. Ben Carson there, thankful for his voice promoting life. 
Um, I read an article this week from uh, the Washington Post, and uh, the, the author was clearly pro-abortion, although tried to be fair in some ways that I thought was, was I appreciated. But the, the, the name of the article was... Um, Uh, the name of the article, um, this teen found out she was pregnant 48 hours before the Texas abortion ban took effect. And then in big lettering, it had she now has twins, um, June 20th, 22. Um, I was actually reading this article when Tim Hope came into my office. And um, it sets up in the article, this girl's 18 years old. Her boyfriend's the same age. She's still in high school. She was a dropout. She had her whole life in front of her. But these kids knocked that back. And now she does not have the opportunities. It's really, really hard. Um, kind of went on and on and on about that. One of the things she was fair in the article was this girl chose, she went to a care net type place like we have here in Owensboro. And um, while there saw she wasn't six weeks like she thought, she was 12 weeks. And she said she got to see a heartbeat. She got to see this is what my baby, oh wait, I've got, two babies. This is what it looks like, um, which helped turn her was probably the biggest thing that turned her from having an abortion. She wanted abortion that day. Um, but then this is what the, the author writes. So what are they weighing right here? Sometimes Brooke imagined her life if she hadn't gotten pregnant and if Texas hadn't banned abortion just days after she had decided she wanted one. She would have been in school rushing from class to her shift at Texas Roadhouse Eyes on a real estate license that would finally get her out of Corpus Christi. She pictured an apartment in Austin and enough money for a trip to Hawaii where she could swim with dolphins in water so clear she could see her toes. So what is this author setting up? Two babies versus swimming with dolphins in water so clear you can see your toes. The kids are keeping me from my best life. And this is kind of considered a, a middle of the road position on abortion in the United States. I think to some degree, we're insulated from maybe a national conscience because of where we live. But there's other places, um, Colorado, California, some East Coast states are kind of destination places for abortion or are getting to be so, um, where even verbalizing that you are not for abortion is, oh, you're a radical. So kind of maybe have some of that going on in your mind. Um, um, I have a, a slide right here of India. We have um, PKs. Let's see, where are we here? Um, why can't I get my little, there we go. Uh, this is Uttar Pradesh. That's where Raj Shaker was from that spoke here a week and a half ago. Um, so if there's, I'm not a doctor and we have doctors in this room, so I'm just going to throw this out here. But if there's a hundred babies born, I think like 51 are girls and 49 are boys on average. Is that Mark? Is that close? Okay. I think it's, I think it's roughly there. So if you were just let things go as they are, it should every, every one of these states in India should be in the dark green saying that there is an equal amount, at least of boys and girls. Uh, they don't have any like that. Um, the most they have is they have between 950 and a thousand, uh, girls for every thousand boys in the darkest green that we have here. 
Um, then we go down in the lighter green here, up into here, down into here. That's 850 to 950 girls per guys, thousand, a thousand guys. If we go in one small spot up in here, we have 790 to 850 girls for every guy that's alive, okay? And that would be, um, that's children, so that's under 18. So that's not um, as they age and, oh, the, you know, childbirth and those kind of things, because those can skew, wars can skew it the opposite way. But that's basically saying one out of 10 kids in much of India, one out of 10 girls is killed either by abortion when they know the gender. Much of India, they wouldn't know the gender till it's born, and so those girls are exposed, killed, put out, whatever. And it's even significantly worse up in this northern, northwestern part right there. So I just want to think, you know, worldwide, these are kind of some norms that if you lived there, that would be a norm to you. Another, uh, I did some reading this past week of Indian dowry deaths uh, in the country, and that would be torture and abuse connected to um, I'm going to marry Natalie. Her parents had to give me a thousand bucks and 20 cows to marry her. They only give me 500 bucks, five cows. And then I can legally beat, abuse, torture her. Her parents know about it. So they will get me all the cows I have coming to me. Okay. And you think, oh, that's really, really isolated. And it is to a degree because there's such a huge population in India. But in the year 2000, there were 6,995 cases of Indian dowry death in the country of India. Now, this is a huge country, but we're at almost 7,000 people. This is according to the Times of India. Uh, in 2010, that number had gone up to 8,391 potential cases. The norm in much of our world is not valuing life, is not seeing life how God sees life. So, so what, is, what does the Bible say about life? Let me read some of these for you. So we'll just, I want to get on the same page on some of the scripture and then see what are some practical things we do with this. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And at the bottom, Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man. This is after the flood, God is talking to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is a big deal. This is something that we somewhat probably take for granted because we hear it over and over and over. Being created in the image of God is a significantly big deal. Genesis 4. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? We know according to the Bible, the answer to that is, yes, you are. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. When people are wrongly killed, their blood is crying out to Almighty God. Significant. Um, a few other verses. Acts 17, who's the author of life? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the author of life. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who's a sustainer of life? It's Almighty God. Psalm 51, the famous psalm after David's deep sin, and he sinned deeply against Bathsheba and deeply against Uriah and against the, the unborn baby. I mean, he commits adultery and, and murder. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's saying, I have sinned centrally and unbelievably against Almighty God. And why is that? Because I, I raised up my hand against one created in the image of God. And so there is a, a soberness to the ethic of life that Christians must have. And I hope that you're going to be influenced by people, you know, because you're going to move away and live over here. You're going to get these friends over here. You're going to see here what's going on social media here. You're going to see national consciences change over time. And the temptation for those even claiming Christ is to say, I don't want to be the weird guy. I don't want to be the person that that looks, you know, in the office, everyone's talking, then they stop. I don't want to be the person that is culturally odd. But if you're a Christian, and this doesn't sell very well, but you're going to be culturally odd. You're going to stand up for life in ways that other people don't. And, and we could say, well, things are going to get better and better, and eventually we're going to usher in, and this, this side of the new heaven and new earth, you are going to be the weird guy. Some of you have listened to... Um, uh, Shamsia and, and Ramazan, uh, this interview they had um, on the Gospel Coalition podcast. Um, Pastor Mark sent that out. Um, we're gonna, you're going to meet them this morning. They're going to be here. We have, we're going to do it at the beginning so it's not taped. And then we're going to go into live stream after that. And uh, if you listen to that, and I would tell you there is no podcast you should listen to in the next six months before you listen to this one. It's just... It's really good. And it pushes us of a life of ease and comfort that we have and are blessed with in the United States. It reminds us of God's care of his children. It's not always look like what we might expect. Uh, it's, it's terrific. But that pushing of life, that pushing of life, that's what Christians must do. Um, so, so maybe some norms in society. So um, throughout history, we'll just go through a little bit of this. So um, you be thinking yourself of what are some norms, maybe even in Bible time history or whatever, what were some norms of how people treated life? So uh, Egyptians would be one. Egyptians, on babies they didn't want, they would take the baby, often from a poor person or a person that said, I can't feed this anymore, kill the baby, cut the baby up, take any fat out of it, which there is not very much in a baby, and would make creams that wealthy people could rub on themselves for health. And this was not considered a bad thing to do. Can you think of anybody else throughout history who have had an utter disregard for life? Canaanites, Rome. Well, yeah, what do you, yeah. 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 
act that what he's seen before. Yeah, yeah. We can't even comprehend. Yeah, yeah. Dwayne, you had a thought there? Well, not from history, but just from our lives. In Serbia, the Roma beg on the streets, of course, and the ones that seem to get the most attention are the women with babies in their laps. The babies were always asleep. We see this every day. Uh, It's because the babies are drunk. The mothers feed their babies alcohol, not yet, and keep them asleep so that they don't fuss. And they're oftentimes not even their own babies. And even if they die, the the women have to stay there with these children. But the children can be three and four years old, not just babies. And they stay drunk in the mother's laps in order to get more money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We look at um, Canaanites. You think of, you know, sacrificing to Molech. But you've seen the statue. The arms are out. They'd roll the baby in. The fire's going, burning the babies up. You could look at... um, Rome, um, Greek culture, the, uh, the, the horrors are kind of over and over. The, the idea of just exposing babies, those that we don't want. If you look at some of the major philosophers of that time, because we have such a tendency of saying, oh, this person is an expert, that person is an expert. And there's some, some health to that. If, if Dr. Ben Carson has some thoughts on life, here I have this brilliant surgeon who, who operates on, on little babies before they're born, I give some credence to what he says. But if you look at a lot of the philosophers from, from history past, Aristotle, Socrates, Cicero, Plutarch, I mean, almost all of them would say exposing babies is the norm and that, that kind of thing should be done or at least it should be acceptable to people. Um, you look at, um, this is a pretty famous quote that most of us have seen at different times. This was uh, around, I think this was from like, 4 BC, um, this guy says he writes home to his wife. He's working outside of where she lives. Know that I'm still in Alexandria. I do not worry if they all come back and I, and I remain in Alexandria if the other workers come back. Um, I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. As soon as I receive payment, I shall send it to you. If you're delivered of a child before I come home, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. I, I, I have never been pregnant with a child, but I cannot fathom saying, hey, honey, love you, love you, kill it. And this, this doesn't appear to be an unusual letter. I mean, he's writing it to remind her how much he loves her. And that was a norm in society at that time. So you guys answer some of this for me. What have Christians done throughout the centuries to uphold life? What are some things that Christians have done throughout the centuries to uphold life? So you're arguing against my um, aunt who would say, yeah, you Christians, you, you like keeping people from having abortions. But as soon as that baby's born, you don't care for them. You don't care for old people. You don't do anything. And I've had more than one person tell me that as a pastor or as a Christian. How would you argue against that? Okay, it's a lie. Okay, 